0: All right, good morning. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 25. Genesis chapter 25. In the Pew Bible in front of you, that's on page 17, starting a new ser- sermon series today on the lives of Isaac and Jacob. I've already preached through 24 chapters of um, um, the book of Genesis. Uh, love the book of Genesis. It's one of my go-to books. It's foundational, uh, it's very ancient, and I love things that are very ancient. Uh, in the very first part of the book of uh, Genesis, we see the creation story. We see God creating things and making all things good. And then after that, we, re- we read about the fall of man, where the where humans took that which was good, that which God created, which was very, very good, which was complete, which was perfect, which was whole, which was peaceful, and we ruined it all. And that event we call the fall of man. And you probably experienced that in your own life as well, when there was something that was very, very good, Around you and you may have ruined it. Uh, And we never intend to do these things. We never think that our actions will have such ripple effects, but they do. And in fact, after the fall of man, uh, we see in one generation how it really descended into violence and murder very, very quickly. The very next uh, story after uh, the fall of man, uh, we, we don't just have them dabbling in sin a little bit or anything like that. They go straight for the most violent thing. And that is what our choice to be unbelievers or to to not believe, to not trust God, uh, eventually brings us to. And so we have uh, this pattern in the early part of Genesis where God does something amazing, God does something good, and then, boom, there's a big fall uh, afterwards. And you see how low it goes with the murder of Cain and Abel, and in fact, the whole line of Cain afterward. But But then there's always this hope that comes after that because... We see from Adam and Eve, okay, Abel is dead, Cain is a murderer, and then we see they have a third son, Seth. And in Seth's lifetime, people begin to call upon the name of the Lord. So there's this hope. But then after that, well, things go so badly again uh, that God decides to wipe the whole world out with the flood, except for Noah and his family. And so Noah and his family, God does this amazing work where he saves them uh, all through this calamity, all through the flood, all through the judgment event Uh, God saves them through it. And then after that, where does it go? Uh, Noah turns out to not be the greatest. uh, uh, He's not bad. The the Bible always holds up Noah, but he's still a sinner. And his uh, children after him, you sort of see their descent until finally it comes to the Tower of Babel, where there's there's this desire to overthrow God again. We're going to make a tower. It's going to go all the way up to heaven. We're going to make a name for ourselves. We're not going to care anything about the name of God, the glory of God in the world. It's only the glory of ourselves. And so God says, Well, I got to do something. I cannot let them go down this path. This path will lead them to death and destruction again, all over again. And so um, he confuses the language, and the, the, the work on the tower is abandoned. And it just looks like humanity is just going farther and farther and farther until finally, uh, just like he chose Noah, he finds a man. He finds Abraham. And he says, You know what? I'm going to do a great salvation work, and it's all going to be through this man, Abraham. And my second sermon series. Uh, from the book of Genesis that I did over a year ago was all about the life of Abraham. And in Abraham's life, uh, there's this, this belief, this initial faith that he is God. And God chooses him, God pro- makes great promises to him, but there's always an obstacle. There's always an obstacle. Whenever, some, whenever God chooses somebody in the Bible to do a great work through that person, that person generally has faith, but God bolsters it, but then there's always this obstacle. Uh, to, uh, to, to them doing God's will and God's promise to Abraham is I'm going to make you a great nation I'm going to make all kinds of people come from you I'm going to create a people group from you uh, we often call the Jews the chosen people they are the chosen people and indeed they are the chosen people but uh, I, I, I think of a, I prefer to call them the created people They're the created people. It's not that God found an ethnic group and said, I'm going to choose that ethnic group. No, he chose a man, and he made an ethnic group all out of Him. He said, these are my people, and they are going to be my conduit for all the blessing in the world. And Abraham is that first man. He's he's kind of like Adam in that way, that God chose him and is going to create a people through him. Um, There's only one obstacle. He and his wife can't have children. There's infertility. That's their problem. And that's the big promise. I'm going to make a nation from you but you can't have children. I mean, it might have been easier if he'd have told him to do something else, build an ark, okay? He'd have had better luck doing that because there were trees around. But if you can't get through your infertility problem, how in the world is he going to make a great nation, an ethnic group, a whole people from you if you can't have one child? And then God's great saving act, guess what? They have a child. And and it was a miracle. And it wasn't... A miracle like the birth of Christ was a miracle. Birth of Christ was a miracle because I mean that goes entirely against all biology, but Abraham having a or Abraham having a child, Sarah having a child when they're well past childbearing years. That's incredible. That's a miracle. That's amazing. That's a mighty work of God. And then after after that I won't, I won't give you the whole details. You can read the story yourself. You probably know the story. You can listen to those sermons too. But after uh, God had given them their child, their child is named Isaac, uh, he's about to face the same kind of thing, the same kind of thing. And in Isaac and Jacob's life, there's all, there are all these obstacles to doing God's will. Some of them are themselves. Sometimes the obstacles themselves. Um, but God is still going to use them God is still going to work through them. God's still going to do amazing uh, works of salvation through them, and it all leads up, of course, to Jesus later on. Okay. So read Genesis. Read Genesis. It's a wonderful, wonderful foundational book for everything. For everything that we believe, all uh, the new we are New Testament believers. But so much of the New Testament all harkens right back to Genesis. You want to know the New Testament? Know Genesis. That's what All right, let's pray and then let's let's start reading in Genesis chapter 25. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your word. Thank you for what it teaches us. Help us, Lord, to be people of the word, people who love you, people who love your word, people who anticipate your great acts of salvation. Lord, help us to be people who have experienced your great acts of salvation and then anticipate all your work in our lives. Help us today in in our particular passage understand, and to be transformed by the truth in it. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to read quite a bit here. I'm going to read all all this chapter from 1 all the way to 28, okay? But then I'm going to preach just a little section of it, okay? Abraham had taken another wife whose name was Keturah. This is after Sarah had died. She bore him Zimron, Jokshan, Midan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan was the father of Sheba, and Dedan, the descendants of Dedan, were the Asherites, the Ledishites, the Leomites. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanak, Abida, and Nalda'ah. All these were descendants of Keturah. Abraham left everything he owned to Isaac. But while he was still living, he gave his gifts to the sons of his concubines and sent them away from his son Isaac in the land of the east. Let me just give you a little parenthesis there, in case you think that that's unfair, that they, get, they were kept out of the will or something like that. There's, there's a, there, there were a norms for how inheritance went in those days, but God had promised Isaac. God had promised something through Isaac. God's All of God's work and all of the salvation history and everything that he's going to do is through Isaac. And so it's, if, if God has chosen your family and you to do something unique, well, maybe everything else that you need needs to be a little bit unique, too. It doesn't need to follow the norms. And don't think that Abraham sent them away empty-handed. Think of Abraham as a billionaire, okay? He is one of the richest men in the area. He has basically an army, Okay, he has basically he has an enormous amount of people in his household. Okay, so think of him as a billionaire, and he sends his sons away with a million dollars each. All right, okay, he didn't leave them empty-handed, but his gesture and all of this is to say that you guys are great. I love you all, but God promised to do something through me, and He was going to do it not just through me but through Sarah. And so, to honor Sarah, to honor her child, she is the one. And Isaac is the one through, all, through which all of this will be accomplished. Okay, guys? All right. Here's your million dollars. Please be cool with that. Would you be cool with a million dollars? Okay. Of course, it wasn't money. It was livestock. But you'd be cool with that too, wouldn't you? I mean, you'd love to have a few camels, a few goats, a few, few herds, right? Okay. Abraham lived 175 years. Then Abraham breathed his last and died at a good old age, an old man and full of years, and he was gathered to his people. And again, that was, I preached Abraham's funeral here, the, the, the last part that I preached in Genesis, and it was probably my favorite sermon. I, I, you may have a favorite sermon that maybe me, or maybe somebody else preached, but I have favorite sermons that i preached, and that was probably one of my favorites. His sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah near Mamre, in the field of Ephron, son of Zohar the Hittite, the field Abraham had bought from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with his wife Sarah. Jack, have you ever been to that place? No. That is a holy site in Jerusalem. I actually think it's in the West Bank. So if you do a a holy land tour, you're probably not going to go there. Uh, You know, Israeli, Palestinian, you know, that kind of conflict. You're probably not going to visit many holy sites in the West Bank, and I think that that's where it is. But it is there, and there are big holy sites. There are churches over it and synagogue and mosque and all this stuff because a lot of people go there because this is where the patriarchs were buried. Just so you know, that place is known today. And after Abraham's death, God blessed his son Isaac, who then lived near Baer This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son Ishmael, whom Sarah's slave, Hagar, the Egyptian, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, listed in the order of birth. Nebioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, Kedar, Abdil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duwa, Masa, Hadat, Timah, Jetur, Naphish and Kadima, these were the sons of Ishmael, and these are the names of the 12 tribal rulers according to their settlements and camps. Ishmael lived 137 years. He breathed his last, and he was gathered to his people. His descendants settled in the area from Havilah to Shur, near the eastern border of Egypt, as you go to Asher. And they lived in hostility toward all the tribes related to them. One of these days I may preach a sermon about sibling relationships, and I may come right back to uh, this verse here. How you were conceived, how you were born, the family you were born into, uh, uh, affects you a lot. And it affected Ishmael a lot. And Ishmael grew up with a chip on his shoulder. And it wasn't unjustified, but how long are you going to keep that? How long are you going to keep that grudge? And are you going to pass that along to the next generation? That would be the the title of that sermon or the, the essence of that sermon. This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son Isaac. Isaac, remember, is the one through whom the promises God is doing his great work of salvation through. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, from Padan Aram, and sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife Rebekah became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first first to come out was red. His whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau. Esau means hairy, by the way. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob, and I'll talk about the meaning of his name uh, next week. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. All right, so Jacob and Esau I'm going to start talking about next week, Uh, but this week I want to talk about Isaac and Rebekah and their problem. Um, Isaac and Rebekah is a wonderful uh, sort of romance. There There are a lot of romance stories in the Bible. There are a lot of stories about how uh, men and women met each other, and it just doesn't match up very well with uh, modern day. Now, love is is love, and marriage is marriage, and the special event is the special event. And you'll never take those things away uh, from the human experience. But uh, Isaac and Rebecca didn't exactly date. All right, um, the way that it happened, the way that it happened was Sarah's dying wish, and Sarah was a good mother. But her dying wish was, "Do not let my boy marry one of these local girls." All right. She had, uh, she had plans in mind. She had prejudices against the local girls. They're all pagans. I do not want my boy uh, marrying one of them. And so what is it? What do you do? Well, go back and find him a cousin. Okay? That's not exactly what we would do these days. But if you look at the family tree of the patriarchs, it doesn't exactly fork very well. All right? But that was the deal. Go find him somebody from our people. Somebody from group, somebody who has the same call, somebody who has the same heritage in their life, and of course, anybody who has a, a marriage where worldviews are mixed. I'm not talking about race, racial mixing or anything like that. What I'm talking about is uh, when people of two very different religions marry together, they have problems. When a monotheist and a polytheist marry, they're going to have problems, all right? So Sarah says, do not let him marry one of these local girls. You go find him a good girl from up, um, from up where we come from. So Abraham said, okay. And he sent his chief servant out um, to go do the job because Abraham's too old to do this himself. He's got to send somebody else to do it. And I love the guy. His name is Eleazar of Damascus. And he is a hero to me in the Bible because before Isaac was born, Eleazar really is the logical one to receive all of Abraham's inheritance. Okay? The chief servant in the household. That's who gets it. And then Isaac is born and takes it all away from him. Would you expect him to go and do a really great job for Isaac then? But he did. But he did. And he went up. And he went up prayerfully to go find the girl. And he said, Lord, I'm looking for the right girl. I'm, I'm putting out these conditions here. This is, this is what I'm looking for. This is the kind of thing, the kind of sign that I need to know that I found the right girl. Fulfilled perfectly. And the first thing he did when he saw Rebecca. And when he figured out, the Lord really has fulfilled all the, the, these little signs that I put out for him. You know what the first thing he did was? He worshipped. He said, oh, my goodness, I see what God is doing in this family. He has sent me out here, and he has made my mission successful. He worshipped. That's wonderful. When you can be glad for somebody else's gain. When you can be glad for somebody else's gain. So he did all the bartering, and he brought not a few gifts, not just a diamond ring or anything like that. He brought camels, camels loaded with things. And says, here you go, this is for her. And you can think of it as a, a, a bartering thing. He paid the bride price, okay? He paid the bride price. And we can think of that, that on a very low level and say they're just buying women. That's all it is, just human trafficking, just buying women. Or you can think of it very nobly and say, she comes from you, your family, this is how much I think of her, all right? A prostitute doesn't cost nearly this much. I am bringing all of these gifts to show you how much I value her. And then they actually gave it up to her, the choice up to her, very, very uniquely done in the Bible. They looked at her and said, are you willing to go with this man? And she said, yes, I am, okay? And so in that sermon, when I preached that a while back, I said to this, this men, there's a bride price, you got to do what you got to do to show her how much she's worth to you. It's done before marriage. It's done after marriage. Don't amen that. <laughs> but you have to do something. Make a gesture. Make a gesture so that she knows and so that her parents know uh, that you're not just here to get. You're here to give as well. And so Rebecca came back with him, with the chief servant, and uh, she married Isaac. And you know what the great part of it is—the last verse in verse 24, in chapter 24, it says, "And Rebecca was a great comfort to Isaac after the loss of his mother." You see, a household needs a matriarch as much as it needs a patriarch. It needs a matriarch, and there's all the certain things that only women can give. And she gave it. She brought it back to this household. She brought back the station of the matriarch. Only problem came, the next thing that happened was, you know, what does a matriarch do? She takes care of things, she nurtures things, she nurtures everybody. Uh, read Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 31, and you'll see kind of what Sarah's station was and, and all the things that she did, and you'll see what Rebecca uh, expected to do, to, to need to do. She manages all, and she's managing a lot of people here, okay? Don't just think of her working from daylight till dark. She did work from daylight till dark, don't get, get me wrong. But remember, she's also managing... An, a household, especially while the men are out doing um, their cultivation of the ground or tending their herds and doing all their business and everything like that. She's managing a household. She's. Uh, uh, do you remember the song, If I Were a Rich Man, from uh, uh, from uh, Fiddler on the Roof, when he says, my wife, I, I'd see her supervising meals to her heart's delight. And she'd be squawking and, and barking at all the servants and everything like a rich man's wife is supposed to do. Okay? That's funny. And that's what Rebecca was uh, supposed to be doing here and I'm sure she was and enjoying it except that there's a big responsibility for the matriarch that she really has no control over but it's still a lot of pressure on her and that is to have children and that is something that i don't know how, how long do you how long do you wait how long do you wait until you realize I think somebody's barren here I think somebody's infertile here How long do you try? Certainly, you hope that uh, 10 months or 9 months after the the wedding that you have a baby. Certainly, you hope for 11 months, 12 months, 18 months. Surely, after that amount of time. But maybe after 2 years go by, 3 years go by, you start to wonder. There's a problem here. There's a problem here. And the matriarch is not having children like she's supposed to. And so, she is certainly going to feel inadequate. And the Bible never blames any kind of infertility on a man, okay? Just so you know that. But don't don't think that it wasn't felt by both parties here. And I will praise Isaac because the thing to do, the thing to do, the remedy for this situation is exactly what his parents did. Find a concubine, find another woman, and she will have a child in our stead, okay? And they didn't do it. He didn't do it. He saw the pain, I think, at least. He saw the pain that it caused in his family. There was somebody who always reminded him that he was firstborn. There was somebody that he saw the pain that his, his parents had to drive him away. And he saw the competition with Keturah's sons, too. Every time polygamy is seen in the Bible, it is shown to be a very bad idea. Don't. So Isaac didn't take a concubine. He didn't find the the short route, the quick route, the the other route to fix or to heal, to get through the uh, obstacle of the inadequacy that Rebecca was feeling, experiencing as matriarch of the household. What did he do? He did the right thing. What does it say? Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. And I just want to step back and say, let's not talk about infertility, the problem of infertility anymore. Let's not talk about um, just having children or anything like that. Rebecca was called to be part of the Holy Family. She was called to be part of God's kingdom in the world. She was part, uh, called to have a very crucial station in the history of Israel and in the history of all the salvation events that God is going to uh, work out later. You are called to be part of the kingdom of God in much the same way. God is working His acts of salvation, proclaiming His message through the church. Uh, Rebecca, to just put it into terms that maybe we might feel or understand, she was being fruitless. She was fruitless. And And it wasn't through any fault of her own. She just felt like, I'm inadequate. I'm not doing what... uh, Our whole family has this spiritual heritage, and it's going to end with me. Oh, no. So for you, God has called you to be part of his church, part of his bride. God has called you uh, to live a fruitful life. What do you do? What do you do if you find that I'm being fruitless here or I'm not bearing fruit the way I thought? I thought the Christian life would be different for me uh, for me. I thought uh, there would be a greater effect or greater transformation or greater change or or greater something in my life. What am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do with that when it doesn't work out like I'd expected? When the fruitfulness is just not there. When if somebody came up to me and said, "Prove that you are a Christian." It's very hard for me to give them any tangible evidence. And of course, it, nothing relies on tangible evidence. You are saved by your faith in Christ, by Christ's work on the cross. That is it. But there is an expectation, isn't there? Expectation from the Lord, expectation by other church members that you bear fruit, that some kind of tangible result is given after you have started to follow Christ. Isn't there? And so what do you do? And I would always just, uh, I would always just point this out. Isaac did not find a quick fix Isaac did not try to circumvent the will of God or any, in any way. What did he do? He just threw his cause, laid it out there uh, in front of the Lord and said, Lord, we've got a, an unfixable situation here. Fix it. Lord, please. Lord, our child, my wife is, is barren. I am barren now. Because, uh, and, and people feel these things together. If one half is is barren, the other half is barren too. If half of this church is barren, the other half feels barren too, okay? I lay it out to you, Lord. Only you can change our course. Only you can change this trajectory. Please, please fix it. You've got to fix it. You've got to find a way out of this situation that we're in. And I would... uh, I would... Urge all of you spouses out there, pray for your spouse. Pray for your spouse. Um, Isaac could have been very bitter towards his wife. He could have put her away under a conventional law in those days. He could have put her away and said, she's barren, I'm going to find another wife. Um, but he didn't. He said, I'm going to put this in the Lord's hands. I'm going to stay faithful to the Lord, I'm going to stay faithful to her, and I'm going to put it into her hands. And so for each of you, I would say that uh, you and your spouse are, I hope, both walking with the Lord. If you're not both walking with the Lord, okay, same difference. While you are walking with the Lord, no matter what place your spouse is in, and it's very hard for people to just sort of stay equal in the Lord, you know. More than likely, one is growing and, and, and the other one's having challenges, all right? We're not always just the same all the time, okay? But as you walk with the Lord, pray for your spouse. Pray for your spouse. Pray that they will be fruitful. Pray that they will experience growth and transformation in Christ. Pray that um, whatever frustrating thing, whatever frustrating, uh, say, stronghold or something like that, that they just can't work through, make sure that you are praying uh, for them. And don't worry that they'll outgrow you, outshine you, or anything like that. I remember in Proverbs chapter thirty-one, what this husband, this husband of this wife, she's good, she's probably better than him, and he's happy. Look at her. Look how well I did. Okay, look how well I did for myself. That's my girl, right there. And it's not a bitterness, and it's not a jealousy. Um, Even Jesus, listen to this. Even Jesus looked at the disciples and said, "You're going to do greater works than these." It's impossible for us to outshine Jesus, of course. But I'm glad he made that statement because he is not worried that we will outshine him at all. Okay? Do not worry that, you will out, that your spouse will outshine you. Uh, sp- spouses can be competitive. I won't, uh, I won't deny it. Don't be. Hope that your spouse hits it every time. And if your spouse is up against that obstacle, up against that stronghold, you pray for your spouse. If you're single, don't worry. Somebody will pray for you, okay? Uh, For one thing, uh, for everybody here, Jesus is your spouse, okay? You're engaged to Jesus. I don't know if you knew that or not, but at the end of all things, the big meal that we have together in heaven, the next time Jesus takes communion, by the way, did you know that Jesus is only taking communion once? Did you know that? He's only taking communion once. He said, "I'm not going to take this again until the end of all things. At my wedding banquet, at the big reception, we'll cut the cake and make the toast with His body and blood again." All right, you're engaged to Jesus, whether you knew it or not. Now you know. Okay, so pray for each other, and be assured Jesus is praying for you. He stands at the right hand of. God the Father, all the time interceding on your behalf, praying that you will get through every stronghold, praying that you will overcome every obstacle, praying that you will stay faithful through every challenge and temptation, and wanting to see you shine, shine your light. Intercede for each other. Intercede for married people if you're single, and if you're married, intercede for single people. They need your help. We all need each other's help help here because when you pray to the Lord, it's not ineffective. It was quite effective for Rebecca. She got more than she bargained for. And here's the warning. She went from one torment to another. She went from the torment of infertility, feeling inadequate in the household, having people snicker behind her back, wondering. Because remember, in the Bible, it's never a scientific problem. It's never a medical problem. It's always a spiritual problem. So they were snickering behind her back for sure, wondering, when, when will she finally give birth? And by the way, to, before I go on to the next point, it took a long time. We don't know when he started praying, and we don't know when the prayer got answered, but we do know that from marriage to birth of the child was 20 years. He was 40 when they got married. He was 60 when he was finally a father. How old was Rebecca? I have absolutely no idea. At most, 15 or 16. So she waited from 15 or 16 to 35, 36 years old. That is a long time to expect to have a child and not. God is playing the long game, just so you know. okay? He he is working in your life. He is moving in your life. He's changing trajectory in your life, but 20 years, nothing for him, and it's not just that he's slow, it's not just that he's a tortoise or anything like that, but he's got a timing in mind, and you'll have to wait until that timing, so don't expect changes overnight. You're praying for your spouse? Good. I know women who have prayed for their husbands for 30 or 40 years before they finally became believers. God is playing the long game. He's got eternity in sights, however long it takes. You want to get through that obstacle? You want to repent of that sin? You want to um, be free of that stronghold? Keep praying. It may take a while. But you if you're walking with the Lord, if you believe in the Lord, you've just got eternity is all. In light of eternity, 20 years, you can do that. You can do that. And then the, the second torment started. They jostled about. Oh, boy, what could this mean? What could this mean? I, I'm guessing it's more than, just, more than just normal pregnancy movement. I'm guessing all the, the, old, the women of the area and everything got together with her and, and looked and said, oh, boy, I, I have no idea. It was never like that for me. It was never even like Mary when she had twins. It was way, way more jostling than that. What in the world could this mean? The infertility, there had to have been something spiritual about it. They brought it before the Lord. And Rebecca, she says, (laughs) and maybe all the other women around saying, this is not normal. Babies move. Of course babies move. You expect babies to move. These babies are not moving. They're warring against each other. They're fighting in there. What in the world could this mean? Because remember, everything's spiritual. It's not just the ones uh, getting all the nourishment and the other one's not or one's bigger than the other or nothing like that got to be a spiritual meaning for it. So they take it to the Lord and the Lord says, yes, there is a spiritual meaning to it. And it follows this pattern. So many times in the Bible, the older will serve the younger. So many times God chooses the unlikely, the unlikely person. How many times did God choose the unlikely son, uh, the unlikely person to continue to do his will? He Often did that. And God saw Jacob and Esau and what they would be like, And we'll talk about them next week. So let's just finish it this way. Put yourself into this story. You're married to Jesus. You're inadequate. Of course you're inadequate. We're all all sinners here. We all are having our minds transformed by the Lord. There's absolutely no way we can live a perfectly fruitful life, life, uh, Christian life, without His help. We've got to have His help. We are terribly inadequate by ourselves. But we can be extremely confident that we are engaged, married to a very faithful groom. And he wants the best for us, and he is interceding for us, and he has paid the bride price for us. He has done all things well, and he is patient, far more patient than we are. But he believes, and he's working in your life to make sure that eventually the fruit will come. So I don't know what you're waiting for. I don't know what you've been waiting 20 years for. Stay faithful in your marriage to him, in praying for yourself and praying for others to experience the fruitful life of God. And be patient, it takes time. I've been a believer for 28 years. Am I perfect yet? Come on, obviously not. But after twenty-eight years, wouldn't you expect somebody to to get it and to understand it and to be to be perfect by that time? Twenty-eight if if you can't get it in twenty-eight years, how long will it take? I suppose a hundred. So I'll just be patient and expect him to keep working in my life. Keep answering this prayer, and all I have to do is walk every day humbly with him. Okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you for Being so patient, being more patient than we are. Remind us, Lord, that every time we come up against fruitlessness in our life or up against some obstacle or stronghold that we cannot penetrate, Lord, please remind us, bring it right before you. Lord, help us to see what we ought to be doing while we're waiting. Lord, please help us to continue to be uh, good servants, good spouses. Help us, Lord, to pray for each other and expect that you will make everyone's life fruitful in time. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you are dismissed. Please shake a few hands on the way out.